it's not enough to to understand where was a mistake. What is very important is to how to say to structureize them. Let's say to to understand the patterns of the mistake, the similarity, and then to generalize it. But you need to structureize it. Yeah, without structurizing, you cannot make any use of it of, of a mistake. Hi, it's Runchex. The following is my conversation with the 14th World Chess Champion Vladimir Kramnik. It is his second time on the show. If you missed the first one, I highly recommend checking it out. This time we cover a broad range of topics, a bit about behind the scenes of the major chess tournaments and the World Championship events, some interesting facts from the history of chess, a bit about politics and power plays in the chess organizations. We also talk about how Vladimir got into chess and, of course, a bit about the Queen's Gambit and the story behind it. And we also cover some practical questions about preparation for matches, learning from your mistakes, identifying weaknesses, how to get the most out of your team, and there is so much more. As always, timestamps are in the description, so feel free to jump around the topics. And now, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Vladimir Kramnik. Okay, Vladimir, uh, what a pleasure to have you on second time. Um, I was really looking forward to this conversation, so let's jump into it. Yes, hello. Hello, Mr. Incognito. Uh, nice, <laughs> nice, nice, to, <laughs> nice to talk to you again, and uh, yes, ready to answer all your questions. Okay, and I do have a lot of questions um, because, you know, especially in the light of um, the new series, the Queen's Gambit, I think the interest in chess is increasing. People are are looking into it, and to have an opportunity to talk to you about the politics of chess, the what's going on behind the scenes in the World Championships, and all of that. When you, of course, in your career was in a very controversial period with uh, FIDE and uh, you know all the things that were going on around it. I think these are the things, these intrigues, uh, these behind the scenes is something that people don't really know much about, yet it is so interesting. Well, uh, in fact, it depends on the period yeah, uh, of chess. Uh, nowadays, there is uh, not much of it going on. I mean, chess uh, is not really so much connected with politics, with intrigues. Fortunately, I I, I like it myself personally. But uh, of course, uh, since quite some time, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a more of a norm. Yeah, then uh, I would say, especially talking about. Uh, let's say, uh, uh, maybe 20s, starting from the 20s, 30s of the previous century up to, you know, uh, maybe 2010 or of eight, you know. Yeah, there were always some kind of uh, politics involved, whether it was a local chess politics uh, or even there was a certain moment of time when uh, it was, you know, uh, touching the so to say, real politics, yes. So uh, if we're talking about Fischer-Spassky match and Karpov-Kasparov and Karpov-Korchnoi, so it was very much connected, I mean, with uh, uh, world politics. And uh, that is why, uh, well, it was attracting lots of attentions. Lots of attention at that time. Uh, and uh, actually it was a moment when chess was... Uh, growing and becoming more and more popular among people, uh, getting into the uh, mass media, uh, 
mainstream media. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's a philosophical question if it's uh, if it's worth if it worth it. Yeah, because uh, well, there are some. I have a for example a friend uh, is working in PR and uh, actually yeah he likes to say that the the only negative uh, PR is uh, is your necrolog yeah. Uh, everything else is positive but I, I i i mean he's more joking of course but uh, uh it's more of a joke but uh, yeah it depends i i don't uh, yeah i'm not a big fan of pr by all means yeah but uh, i understand that from other point of view it's uh, it uh, uh somehow makes uh, chess makes what you do grow and uh, in a way it is positive yeah for um for you but yeah i have mixed feelings about it but true yeah there was there were moments when it was really getting very very high level politics especially fisher yeah fisher spassky and you know that that uh, uh there was a by the way a very very good documentary i would recommend it to everyone it's actually a very nice story about bobby fisher it called uh, it called uh, it was called uh, bobby fisher against the world i think like one and a half hour documentary maybe was made uh, appeared like 10 years ago but uh, a very nice one i mean it just shows uh, a, a very strange controversial personality of fisher of bobby fisher who was obviously a genius of course and uh, all those political uh, games around it including you know the very top level for example the even the kissinger he is taking part in this uh documentary and he is he's uh he was actually trying to to convince bobby fisher to play this match yeah and he was he, he even called him personally and finally managed to convince uh, so you know if it gets into such level and he was probably a second person in the country at that time so uh, you know, it's, uh, so the, the, of course, Karpov Korchnoi, when, when Viktor Korchnoi, he was a refugee, he, he, uh, escaped from Soviet Union. He was playing a tournament in, uh, Amsterdam, I think, the 76, I believe, and he, uh, asked for a political, uh, how, how it calls, asylum, yeah, or mm-hmm. asylum, asylum, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, and uh, of course became an enemy of of uh, Soviet state, and then he was uh, fighting for the world championship title with Anatoly Karpov, and and uh, there was a lot of intrigues, politics involved in it, and uh, and again uh, those intrigues, those, those chess intrigues are usually quite uh, how to say refined, you know, quite uh, complicated because in general chess players. Uh, intellectual people and uh, they they are capable of of uh, you know uh, quite uh, complicated combinations not only on the chessboard yeah if they want to so uh, yeah there was some I, I unfortunately or fortunately I don't know but I was also involved because when I became world champion in 2000 we had a very difficult time with lots of uh intrigues and uh, we had divided we had more or less two official world champions and so on so lots of things were going on uh i was not enjoying it at all but uh, had to as a world champion at that time uh and you know in chess 
the world championship uh, title is very important. I mean, the figure of the world champion is is very, very influential. It's just historically happened like this, you know. In a way, a world of chess has always been a monarchy, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's uh, somehow the figure of the world champion was uh, very influential always. And uh, so I had to be involved in it. Fortunately, somehow it, it got better. Yeah, it got much better and maybe... If, partly was my fault so to say uh, I hope I hope so I hope it was partly influenced by my position because I didn't like it and had lots of fights with uh, the national federation and other prominent figures who yeah who had another vision of uh, how the world of chess should develop and so on and uh, in a way now I can uh, probably I mean uh, Without false modesty, I can say that actually my position prevailed. Finally, we have now a very clear uh, sportive uh, uh, setup. You know, everything goes very smoothly and uh, no scandals for already quite many years. And uh, that's, uh, that's, I really enjoy. But all in all, yes, so I, I can tell many things about it, but depends on what exactly you want to know. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think there's so much to talk about there and we'll definitely get there. Let's first step back and why do you think in the period where there was so much politics involved, like the Fisher's time, mm-hmm. was it because it's Soviet Union against United States? If it was an Indian chess player, would it be the same hype? Is it something intrinsic to chess or was it just, you know, the Soviet Union against the West? That yeah, no, obviously, it, obviously, it was uh, it was because of the Cold War. Yeah, but uh, chess, you know, it represents. Uh, well, you know, there is a myth uh, which people believe in, uh, a lo- uh, which is partly true, but of course not to such extent. That you know, what is chess uh, in the uh, ordinary people's mind? Yeah, w- what is it all about? It's basically about. Uh, who is more clever yeah so basically if you are better at chess you are, you are a more clever person yeah which is of course not not the case i mean it's uh, uh, at the same time you definitely need uh, some kind of, some uh, intellect yeah some iq obviously yes it, basically if you are good at chess it means you are not a very stupid person i mean that is pretty sure but it absolutely doesn't mean that uh, if you are better if you are winning uh, a chess game against your friend that you are more clever i mean or other way around it's uh, of course it's not it's not true but in general there is this myth yeah which helps a lot chess which is very helpful for chess because if you just um, go out uh, and ask somebody on the street uh, well, uh, something about chess who doesn't know much. I mean, most probably he would tell you, yeah, it's kind of geniuses. I mean, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the guys who are playing on the top level, they must be, you know, IQ 1000 or whatever. You know, I mean, there is this kind of myth. But uh, so that's why, because, of, because this was established already for quite some time, um, then he wrote this title of the chess world champion was supposed to be like an uh, uh, example of uh, intellectual superiority, so to say. Yeah? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, you know, uh, I mean, th that's why it was, was quite important. It was quite important. And since Soviet Union um, started to develop it in the 20s, uh, and uh, I suppose because uh, one of the reasons was that uh, it was very cheap, yeah? Chess is, uh, chess is not expensive at all. You just need a chess board, uh, and then you can play in chess books. So, and it was an, a, a very cheap way, and the Soviet Union in the 20s was uh, in quite critical economical shape. And, okay, since you have to develop something, I mean, some sports, you, okay, it's very logical decision to develop chess. And uh, there were, anyway, certain traditions already before, even in Tsars Russia. We had some big tournaments and with all best players. We had uh, Mikhail Chigorin was very famous uh, Russian player who who was even playing for the world championship match. Uh, he was uh, was fighting for the world championship at some point. So we have we had certain traditions, but then uh, okay, they started to develop it, and very quickly, Soviets became. I mean, let's say if the whole kind of program started, I would say around 1920. And already by 1940, we had a very powerful, uh, I would say, Soviet chess school, many very strong players. And in 1948, we, we used to have the first uh, Soviet world champion. Although, of course, uh, there was a story with the third world champion, uh, fourth world champion, Alexander Alokhin, who was a, quite a figure, actually, extremely interesting figure and actually interesting life of a person, you know, who was unfortunate to to experience all the troubles of the 21st century. Yeah, so he was, I mean, uh, he was at the First World War, then, then the Second World War, all those uh, problems, and he had, uh, uh, well, uh, again, a very, very interesting biography, so I can recommend you, all of you who uh, who is watching this, uh, to... To study a little bit to try to find some good book on him because it's it's not a chess story it's more human story of a, a person in a way some kind of uh, uh, best harmon <laughs> in chess but a male best harmon who yeah who actually just wanted to play chess most of all but was uh, in a very unfortunate time of all kind of problems he was injured in the first world war he was arrested uh, at some point, miraculously escaped, uh, you know, uh, he was already a very top player, but he was uh, then miraculously escaped, actually, uh, death penalty. Then he was very strange. I think he was partly had to work for Soviet state, but uh, uh, very unclear. Then he left uh, Soviet Union. Then, uh, okay, he was persona non grata in Soviet Union. He became world champion was a genius chess player, of course. Then, then there was this time of Second World War when he he was staying in France. He used to live in France at that time. And uh, okay, uh, then Germans, they, of course, uh, invaded. So he was kind of, he was, well, I wouldn't say collaborating with them, but uh, he was still playing tournaments. And so he had a Jewish wife. So um, I guess he was explaining then later that, uh, okay, he just was afraid that she will go to the to Auschwitz or something. So uh, then, of course, after that, uh, after the, the end of the war, he, he became a kind of persona non grata already in the old civilized world. And finally, what happened that he died 
as a world champion. I think the only one so far who died uh, being a world champion. In a very strange circumstances, basically, there are lots of still investigations. Not clear if he... It was somewhere in Portugal, and uh, he was supposed to... I mean, official version that he died of heart attack, but there were many strange things in the story, and uh, there were quite there are quite a lot of hints also that he was actually killed. By whom? Hard to say. Maybe, um, yeah, difficult to say. Many versions. So, I mean, this kind of very tragic, very complicated uh, uh, personality. Uh, so that's, uh, of course, you know, um, yeah, we have. That's actually quite good about chess because usually. Somehow, yeah, it, it happened to be that uh, it was always a part of the culture, part, part of the history in a way, you know. I mean, and uh, then we had Mikhail Batvinik, the first Soviet world champion and so on. So then since that time, we had only Soviet world champions, yeah. And and uh, Soviet Union totally was totally dominating the Soviet chess school, yeah, the chess world. And uh, at some point, nobody could really fight. So even not only that we had only Soviet uh, world champions, but also the finalists were always Soviet. I mean, so always basically the final match for the world championship was between uh, two Soviet players at the end of, you know, since 48, uh, until the Fischer arrived. I mean, a complete genius from United States who was alone, but... Uh, uh, started to be very dangerous, started to beat uh, many Soviet players, and it was very obvious that he is, uh, is a very unique you know, genius, that he is very dangerous. And then, of course, then the whole machine started, the political machine, because United, I mean, basically mainly from the, because uh, the, it was a kind of pretty harsh Cold War period, yeah? And... Uh, uh, I mean, you know, you, you remember this Caribbean crisis and so on. So actually, Fisher was already at that time. He became world champion in '72, but already beginning of six of of sixties, he was already a very prominent player. was was a serious challenger uh, for the world championship title. And then, uh, um, okay, of course, uh, the United States wanted to use this chance. I mean, to if he manages to win, to show that, okay, even in chess, you know, we managed to beat you. So it was a very strange, uh, was a very strange, uh, you know, it's politics, yeah. Pol politicians, they use every chance to uh, to gain popularity by themselves or, and so on. And so, yeah, so then somehow it turned, but in this movie, uh, Bobby Fischer against the world, uh, there is a lot about it, yeah, a lot about these historical documents, and also he was followed by FBI because, uh, I mean, lots of things. I will not uh, give too many spoilers, but uh, yes, quite quite many um, interesting figures in the world of chess uh, who were in some way very much, uh, how to say, uh, uh, connected to politics, uh, very often uh, without, uh, you know, against their own will, but somehow it was was the case up till uh, up to very you know maybe very recent times so uh, so to answer your question in short definitely um, it was not only about i mean it was not nobody cares about chess i mean the politicians yeah who were so to say promoting it it was only that chess was linked to the intellectual superiority and of course, it was just because there was a Cold War and, you know, so that, that was uh, this coincidence. And the same story was with Korchnoi and Karpov. 
Then there was this Kasparov-Karpov, also this breakage, Gorbachev, you know, new times. Uh, so it was also getting kind of political in a way, yeah, because it was presented as a uh, kind of old Soviet generation guy with against the young, uh, you know, Western free world, you know, uh, challenger, yeah, Karpov-Kasparov. So again, it was getting there. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, then the, another question is how close was it to the to the real truth? But uh, you know, we are, we are living in such world, uh, you know, that it's very difficult to be sure what is real, what is the real truth, and what is a nice uh, legend, you know, nicely packed, uh, and uh, um, then so yeah. But that's already another story. Yeah if you want to go into details and if you want me to tell how was it at least my opinion how, uh, how was it in reality yeah let's say because at least i know a bit more than other than ordinary people let's say because i was partly involved in it but uh, uh yeah absolutely we will we will get into that story uh and there's so many other things that that we will get into um before we go there Let's talk a bit about the path to the world championship because I don't I don't think that everybody in the general public really understand the path you know the, that the world championships is happening on a regular basis and how does the challenger arrive the tournaments for qualification and all of these things so maybe let's uh, paint the picture on that a bit Yeah I don't think it's very different to the other sport but uh, uh... Yeah, well, first of all, uh, the different different sports have different systems. Yeah, of the world championship, for example, uh, uh, soccer uh, is one system. Yeah, tennis another system. They don't have world champion at all. Yeah, it's like number one rating. Boxing is uh, always a fight between two world champion who has to. Uh, you know, uh, defend his title. So chess in this way is more close, it's closer to boxing. Uh, our system with only um, exception that in chess, uh, since uh, I would say middle of 50s or something, we have a well, very clear structurized ways uh, to qualify. So actually the player who, ha- who gains the right to play the world championship match against the current world champion, he needs to qualify via certain qualification events. Uh, the world champion is there. He is, uh, so the one who is the current world champion, he is uh, playing in the final. So he doesn't have to qualify, obviously. He's playing the final match. He's waiting for his opponent. And uh, let's say uh, it happens once in two, once in three years, depending on times. Yeah. So sometimes once per, nowadays it's uh, once every two years, the world championship match. Although again, now with the pandemic, uh, they they were supposed to play this year, but it's clear it will be postponed to to the next year. So it will be once in three years again. Uh, but more or less, yeah, this and uh, and then okay, if uh, the challenger has to be the world champion to become the new world champion. So in a way, very very close to boxing, only with a very clear qualification system. Uh, but uh, yes. Uh, but okay, there were times when situation was getting messy, and uh, so especially in 1993 when Gary Kasparov he used to be a world champion, 
and we have a FIDE international chess uh, organization, which is uh, the organizer of the world championship. And supposedly, although I don't know, it's very difficult to know a legal situation. Uh, the kind of owner of this title, of the world championship title. I, I never really understood uh, uh, what what does it mean, the owner. Yeah, Let's say if now the world champion Magnus Carlsen, he goes and he says, okay, I want to play the match outside of International Chess Federation. And it will be called not world championship, but let's say world challenge. But, you know, everybody would take it as a world championship. So it's it's a kind of strange situation. Uh, it's a strange situation that normally it is uh, supposed to be uh, under the umbrella of the International Chess Federation. But the, Kasparov in 1993, he had some uh, arguments with, with them. Uh, and then he decided to, to found his own organization, which was called uh, association of chess professionals or something like that. Uh, professional chess association, I think. Uh, and uh, then he decided to organize world championship under this uh, umbrella. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, FIDE, International Chess Federation, they, they, uh, announced it as non-legal. Yeah. They, they were continuing to organize their own world championships. And so we had for quite some time a situation with two, two actually parallel cycles, like in boxing now, yeah, like uh, uh, you have many different organizations, but they at least are not like uh, direct concurrents. Yeah, they are trying to kind of, you know, work together. That time it was a dire, direct ri rivalship. So uh, Karpov, he again became world champion under FIDE, so without Kasparov, actually. Kasparov was this... So, uh, professional chess organization world champion, but of course, in a, in a public uh, view, uh, Gary Kasparov was a world champion because he was the best player. Also, he was more. Uh, although, uh, even if Karpov was also pretty good, still, I mean, he was number two clearly at that time. But uh, okay, Kasparov was stronger, so it was a very very messy situation with a lot of conflicts, scandals. Of course, those two organizations started to fight very seriously with uh, with each other and uh, lots of uh, intrigues problems and i was actually experiencing uh, experiencing it all because i was already a top 10 player by that time even top five players so uh and among some other top players uh, we okay we were uh, somehow uh, getting uh, you know influenced by that, our careers and so on. So it was, uh, but in general, yeah, in general, this is the system. And now, for example, if you're talking about nowadays, the system is very clear. So basically you, uh, there are some qualifications uh, stages. Uh, of course, you, I mean, theoretically, let's say theoretically speaking, any player, in, including uh, anyone who is listening to, to this, uh, 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 our conversation uh, has a right to uh, to take part in the world championship. It's just that the stage would be extremely low. It would be maybe the local local town championship. Then it goes to the regional, then to the national, then to the international. But basically, yes, everyone can can become world champion theoretically. So in this sense, it's very democratic. Yeah, I mean, when the system works and now it works, yes, yeah, then then it's uh, the case. But uh, when it gets to the uh, 
uh, to the serious business. I mean, to the real, really close, it's basically uh, there are certain parameters. We have a ranking system like in tennis. Yeah, it's uh, uh, we have official ranking since 1960 or something. So uh, uh, basically every, every game, official game you play in official tournament is counted. So that makes, uh, that is very important. Yeah, your, your rating, your ranking. Uh, but still, it's not enough. I mean, there is uh, the just the, the final qualification before the match is a tournament of eight best players in the world, and the winner is uh, getting qualified to play a match. But uh, uh, actually, out of these eight, uh, I think two are getting there just by rating. I mean, the first after the world champion, the, the best, uh, the highest rating players but the uh, average rating uh, of the last year not just one yeah because not mm-hmm. just the current one because that could be too easy so basically who who was basically in the last year before this candidate tournament who was the, the best player the first two then another two from one qualification then from other qualification then one the previous loser of the world championship match he goes into the candidates tournament and uh, yeah, so finally eight players, and uh, then uh, if you win it, which is not easy because it's a very tough tournament, obviously, then you get the right to play the the world championship match. And uh, yeah, so I can say uh, so far our first uh, official world championship match was, if I remember well, eighteen seventy six. So one and a half century ago, more or less, it was official. But of course, we had before unofficial world champions, like Morphy was very famous, American was, uh, I mean, genius and just was beating everyone. Uh, he just he went from US to Europe. He just uh, totally, Europe at that time was uh, uh, the European players uh, were the best in the world and he just crushed them all. And then he came back to US and he never played chess uh, anymore. So, um, and uh, but it was unofficial. So officially, it was from 1976, and so far we only had 16 world champions. I mean, under this system. So uh, yeah. So usually, yeah, if somebody becomes world champion, uh, well, he stays for a while. Quite often, because okay, he really is kind of unique for his uh, 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 for his time. But there are some exclusions uh, because, for instance, I think. Only half, I was calculating, only half of the world champions, uh, close to half, uh, became world champions more than once. So basically, uh, uh, I would, I think out of 16-7, if I'm not mistaken, they lost their title. Uh, they just got it once. They became world champion and the next uh, match they lost it. Or And in, including, by the way, very, very big names, maybe the most talented or genius player like Capablanca, Actually, he was only once a world champion, strangely enough, although he is one of the greatest, of course. Fischer himself, by the way, he was just once a world champion. And uh, so Tal, Mikhail Tal, I mean, uh, incredible genius, but also he was a world champion only for one year. He lost uh, the title after, and uh, he was a very interesting person, very charismatic, and uh, he, he became world champion at 22, and actually, I think, 23, and lost, lost it at 24. And then he, he said that he is probably going to be the forever in the history, the youngest ex-world champion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, okay. So, I mean, we have, we have a rich, rich history yeah, in chess. 
that candidates tournament that you've mentioned, eight people mm-hmm. qualifying for the world champ uh, for the right to play against the world champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is the loser of the previous world championship match. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How come we had Karpov against Kasparov for whatever it was, like 26 years or something in a row? No, it was not totally narrow, but because it started to be a kind of mess, yeah, because, uh, well, um, everything was going according to the normal regulations. Karpa was a world champion and deservedly so, he was extremely strong. And then this young Gary Kasparov started to, well, to race and it was also quite clear that he is an amazing player. He won qualification very convincingly, you know. It was a bit different system at that time, so it was matches. Instead of one tournament, there were eight players that were playing matches with each other. But whatever, he won all the matches, and then they, they were facing each other in the World Championship match in Moscow, and I even remember it because I've been, actually, I've been uh, there once, uh, you know, in the playing hall as a kid. Um, during this match. And then we had this very, yeah, saga in 1984. It started, it ended in 1985. Because uh, since then, I mean, they have changed rules. Because at that time, the rules were that they're playing a match. Uh, up to the moment, somebody wins six games. Yeah, so, so there were, it was unlimited match. Yeah, So you just have mm-hmm. to win six games. I mean, the first one who gets it, he is a world champion. But the level of chess was becoming higher and higher. Strong, I mean, and uh, in fact, uh, the match uh, uh, was lasting for ages. I mean, for half a year almost. Because, well, uh, yeah, it was a very dramatic match because Karpov uh, was leading 5-0 at some point. So he was, I mean, Kasparov was very, very talented, but still Karpov was Karpov. Yeah, he was uh, having a bit more class. And uh, yeah, so at some point he, he got to 5-0, but he couldn't manage to win the sixth game. And he started to get really tired because it's, I mean, it's insane. They were playing, they started in September 84. And I think the match ended in February 85, you know. So, I mean, with some breaks, but, you know, they were playing, I think, three games a week, but it was just 48 games they played finally. And uh, it's, uh, what happened that uh, Karpov, well, basically it's a very interesting story also, uh, because, um, well, the, I think the, the problem of Karpov was, and I, I, I believe probably he still uh, cannot forgive himself for, for this, because I think he wanted to win 6-0. I mean, it was at some point, because he started very well. Kasparov was an experienced and probably over-optimistic, he thought, okay, I mean, Karpov, of course, good, but, you know, he, I think Kasparov was even ahead of Karpov already by rating, and he thought, okay, I'm not worse at all. But, you know, it's not the same playing other players and playing world champion, especially such as Karpov, and that's what he admitted himself afterwards. And, um, yeah, so he started uh, very aggressively, and after nine games, he was 0-4. With, he lost four games with five draws. So it's a total disaster. In the World Championship match, it's just a disaster, yeah? I mean, usually it's very equal battle, one point, somebody is leading one, two points maximum. Here, it was just a crash. And uh, so since then, uh, he decided that he should just keep it going. I mean, just not to lose, uh, uh, you know, in 15 games, which would be a total shame. So he started to play very safe, just trying to make a draw uh, in every game. And... Uh, Keep it going. Yeah, simply not to. In fact, I, I I am sure he didn't believe at all he's going to win. I mean, because of course it's 
impossible, you know, basically impossible to, to get back from zero four, you know. And the problem of Karpov was that he, I think that uh, he wanted to win 6-0. So he decided, okay, I want really to punish. I, I want to show who is who is where, yeah, who, who is who. And uh, of course, if he would take some more risk, maybe he would lose one or two games, but he would get to 6-2 maybe by game 20 or something, you know. Mm-hmm. But he will, he also decided to play very safe and just to, to wait for his chance, you know. And uh, then they had... Uh, incredible 17 draws in a row. Uh, then Karpov won finally the fifth game. and But by that time, it was already game 27. Okay, I think Karpov started to get really tired already, simply physically. And uh, um, Kasparov started to fight back somehow. And uh, so finally... Uh, uh, I mean, Karpov couldn't win this last game. And uh, at some point, he already was actually physically doing quite badly. I mean, I, I, many people know that he was already in quite bad shape. He had a, uh, he lost a lot of weight and he was never an overweight person. Let's put it this way. At that time, he was quite thin and he was losing a lot of weight. And actually, people around him, and especially he was a very big, prominent figure, they were just a threat for his health, basically. Yeah? Because he was, I know... Also, because one of my person who was whom I was working with uh, later on uh, physical shape, he was uh, he was his coach, sort of physical coach at that match, and he was telling me that it was quite scary. Yeah? I mean, he was losing a lot of weight, and he was really even getting some, at least as far as I know, some oxygen injections. You know, from I mean, in between games, just to. So it was so finally, and and he was started to play quite badly. It's clear he couldn't play anymore. So Kasparov won game 47, game 48. So uh, it was already 5-3, and it started to be not so clear. I, seen, I still believe Karpov was a favorite in this situation because mm-hmm. just one game he needed to win, yeah? But it's getting, it was getting very uncertain. And in fact, it was not even about chess. It was more that, you know, I mean, it's clear that uh, it, he can end up in a hospital, you know, and that is not, not what uh, Soviet leadership and actually everybody, yeah, all, all the uh, amateurs, you know, they wanted. Yeah? So at that time they made, uh, all of a sudden, the FIDE president, Florenzo Campamanes, he flew to Moscow and he... There were a lot of intrigues, a lot of uh, negotiations, but finally they stopped the match uh, with a 5-3 and uh, they decided to start a new match from 0-0 in one year. And then it all started. And then after this match, Karpov said, okay, I had two points advantage. You start with 0-0, then give me a chance to play if I lose match revenge, you know, which was abandoned already for many, many years in the 60s. So they decided to go for this compromise and then it all started like this. And finally, uh, they had this saga for 12 years, I would say 12 years, when it, when it was more or less about them playing matches. Yeah, But uh, yeah, it was uh, uh, actually very interesting also movie, if you want, a serial can be made out of it. Yeah, because it's no less interesting than the most more famous story with Fischer Spassky or Karpov Korchnoi because... It was really an amazing, I mean, absolutely, as they say sometimes that, you know, you cannot, 
imagine things which which can happen in life you know with all your imagination so mm-hmm. it's impossible to imagine that in the world championship match somebody who is losing 0-5 finally becomes world champion i mean it's just and you know it, i mean it was a match before the six week i mean you just need needed six victories and somebody has 5-0 and not becoming a world champion that is absolutely also you cannot imagine that the match will be uh you know, simply stopped at some point, you know, that it would take half a year. I mean, nobody could ever imagine it. So it was quite a story. I mean, I would say that if somebody uh, would write a scenario, fantasy scenario, I don't think somebody would get into it. It would, it would just not, it, it wouldn't be believable. Yeah, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was sure. a, the reality. True. And then the 12 years of rematches, um, Seems I mean, really it was, unfair. Really unfair it to was, other well, challenges. First, it was matches. Uh, I mean, they played this match. So Kasparov won in '85. Then he won the match revenge in '86. Then Karpov got the place in the finals of the of the final match for the candidates tournament, and he was still stronger. So he won. Then there was another match uh, in 1988. Then I don't even remember why, but they play another one in 1990. I mean, no, no, 87, then, yeah, it was 84, 85, 86, 87, I think, if I remember well. Then they played in the 90, and then, the uh, yeah, that was the last match, because in the 93, they, Karpov actually lost in the, in the final match of the uh, qualification. He lost against Nigel Short, very, very, I mean, nobody was uh, expecting it. But Nigel Short, a British grandmaster, he was very strong. He was one of the top players, but he lost. So he finally, in, in 93, it was about uh, Kasparov Short, playing Kasparov Short. And Karpov was already losing his title and losing his rights, in a way, yeah, to play mm-hmm. these matches. But then, due to this um, 1993 division, you know, uh, this decision of Kasparov to leave FIDE, so it was a rebirth for Anatoly Karpov because then he, as a finalist of the uh, of the previous cycle, not the winner of it because Short was a winner, but Short went to play with Kasparov. So he was getting the title back again. <laughs> so all of a sudden he became again FIDE World Champion. And then, uh, and, and even a very nice one because uh, there was no Kasparov there. Yes, so he kept his title in 96 then back and uh, and since that time since 94 again he, there was a lot of negotiations uh, to play this match of two champions yeah so to say Kasparov and Karpov yeah but uh, so then again it was on the agenda because after 93 everybody said okay it's not anymore on the agenda yeah the new generation started to appear and also very very uh, serious generation so somehow it seemed to everyone that Karpov's time is already slowly but surely starting to um, uh, to be you know uh, already uh, a past yeah so but all of a sudden he came back again and uh, they were very close to organize the match again we had to wait for the negotiations but they couldn't finally find an agreement and uh, uh, actually, the last match they've played, I mean, the official World Championship match, in fact, was 1990. But it was on the air until, I would say, almost 2000. It was on the air. So there were lots, always some negotiations going on and so on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Why did Kasparov actually 
leave FIDA and establish his own organization. Do you know a bit about uh, what was going on there? Yes, yes. I, I mean, uh, it was a difficult time. Uh, I would say definitely FIDA as an organization was not uh, going, it was not doing incredibly well. I would say they would still find uh, some money for the for the whole World Championship cycle, including the World Championship match. But uh, Kasparov, first of all, he didn't have too good relations with them because, you know, the the president of the uh, International Chess Federation, uh, Florencio Campomanes, was at that time uh, for many years, and then he was supposedly a kind of Karpov person. I mean, uh, because, okay, which is logical, Karpov was a world champion for many years, so he was kind of Karpov-friendly and Kasparov was not happy about it, even if, okay, just very soon after Kasparov was uh, supporting Kampamanis against Karpov, who was supporting another candidate in the next election, so which was a bit uh, kind of, uh, I would say, unusual, uh, unexpected for me as a young player. I, I just couldn't really get it, you know, because, you know, I know the big enemies and all of a sudden I see just uh, in the elections, Kasparov supporting Kampamanis, who was supposed to be totally pro-Karpov and Karpov is supporting another guy who is against Kampamanis. So I just couldn't understand what's going on. Now, of course, I already understand that, you know, it's uh, as uh, uh, somebody has said, at least they they... Uh, officially, they say that it was Churchill, but I, I'm sure somebody else before him at, at uh, um, uh, you know, uh, inventing this sentence uh, that, uh, let's say, if you're talking about official story about Churchill, so he was asked uh, once, uh, who are the friends uh, and enemies of uh, Great Britain? And his answer was, uh, Great Britain has no friends or enemy or enemies. Great Britain has its interests. So yeah. in, a, in a way, it was the same. So, I mean, I thought there was some kind of friendship or rivalship between Karpov, Kasparov, Kampamanis, but I then I understood it just about interest. So at some point, interest started to be different, and then all of a sudden we saw totally another coalition. But anyway... Uh, I think that at that time, Kasparov was very powerful. He was a very mediatic figure. He had really a lot of, his name was huge in the world and so on. And I think he decided that he can do it without FIDE, without this a bit kind of heavy structure. And uh, he, he could raise the money, which he did uh, for a few years, I would say. He was raising good money for, for this new organization. I'm not sure if it was, I mean, uh, such a bad decision. Hard to say. I mean, he uh, afterwards and nowadays is saying that he regrets it and he thinks it was a mistake. Actually, I'm not sure it was a mistake. I think what was really a mistake is that he was not too consistent. That actually he gave up too early because it was, uh, I remember to, uh, 1993, 1995, we had a fantastic lot of tournaments organized by this uh, PCA, so-called Professional Chess Association, with very good price founds and world champion Kasparov and Anand, they played under this PCA. And everything was going well, but then at some point uh, something happened. And uh, I, I wouldn't say, I don't know exactly. Uh, rumors goes, and quite many people, they, they believe that it was mainly, uh, the problem was that our this, the main sponsor of this of all the chess activities of this professional chess association was Intel. 
yeah, very big company at that time, Intel. And uh, then uh, Kasparov, he signed uh, with... Uh, uh, IBM, yeah, for to play these matches against computers, these famous matches, uh, <clears throat> which fine and uh, you know logically, uh, uh, what people think that it was not very much welcomed by Intel, who was <clears throat> uh, considering IBM as a direct concurrent, yeah, mm-hmm. and that's why they stopped sponsoring it, and this, the association collapsed finally. But I don't know. This is really. I mean, it's just uh, logical, but still a guess, yeah? I, I cannot be 100% sure. But all in all, what happened that, unfortunately, it all uh, collapsed. But um, I think these two years or three years when it existed were very, very successful. I believe that if it would have continued further, <clears throat> it could have been a, nowadays ATP, you know, in tennis. could have been a dominant uh, chess organization in the world, but... It didn't happen. What was the key difference between the two structures? Uh, no key difference, just uh, basically the key difference that one structure was uh, the leader and the ruler was Gary Kasparov and another was Anatoly Karpov. <laughs> that was basically it. Mm-hmm. But uh, the idea was still the same, is to organize some tournaments, world championship to, to raise money to raise some money, yes. And uh, yeah, I would say the, uh, what, as it happened that Kasparov was more uh, trying to search money and successfully for some period of time uh, in a private field, in a private sector uh, with big companies and so on. And FIDE was more, I would say, more uh, trying to find some state uh, money. I don't know, some kind of more, you know, uh, there was some private sponsor, but more mecenat style sponsorship, you mm-hmm. know, with some, sometimes even states would just organize it because they wanted a good image and so on. So, but all in all, I mean, it was not a big difference. Yeah, it was more a political fight, yeah, fight for power, I would say. I think both Kasparov wanted to dominate in the world of chess, not only as a chess player, which he did, but also as a, you know, chess organizer and as a, and uh, Fide and Karpov as well, they were not, uh, they had a different opinion about it. Let's put mm-hmm. it this way. Okay. And speaking of raising money, uh, there was just a fleet mention in the Queen's Gambit when Beth, Beth mm-hmm. Herman uh, was trying to f- uh, find money for her trip to Russia. And there was mm-hmm. the church organization which wanted uh, to persuade her to push some sort of agenda with, with their own message. She refused. Eventually, she had to finance the money herself. It was just a brief moment in the movie, yet it seems like for the top chess players, all these administrative things, financing, etc., etc., at some point, it's also a lot of work. What is the behind of the scenes there? Especially when you're going to the top. I imagine once you are already the world champion, the, the financing becomes much, much easier. But for aspiring aspiring players, I'm, I'm sure that some are actually struggling to, to finance their, their ascent to the, to the top. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, well, only that it's uh, uh, you're right that once you're a top player, at least you, uh, I mean, you get some fees, some prize money, so you can do it yourself. I mean, in the worst case, you 
sponsor yourself, yeah, your trip. I mean, that's uh, most of the time in any case, it is uh, paid, of course, by organizers. And if you are talking about such tournament like uh, <clears throat> like this uh, imaginary, imaginary event in Moscow, yeah, in this serial, that of course they would pay everything, ticket <clears throat> and hotel and so on. Other, other thing is that for your trainers, you have to pay yourself and you need in such level, you need uh, uh, some amount of uh, people who are helping you. And that is, uh, yeah, that is uh, something which uh, you are lucky if you find a sponsor or, you know, in the Soviet Union, it was a state who was doing it, but in return also asking some things like, for instance, in Soviet Union up to the middle of 80s, uh, you had to give 80% of your prize fund to the state if you are playing abroad, for instance, yeah? 80% you give to the state, yeah? But state gives you everything, provides you trainers, accommod- I mean, absolutely everything during your whole professional career, but you, yeah, most of the money you have to give back. Uh, so that was a system, yeah? But uh, in the West, uh, yeah, usually the... The top players, they were just sponsoring it themselves. Actually, now it's changing. Now, uh, almost anyone who is more or less talented, I mean, who has some some prospects, and this is pretty obvious often, yeah? Already at the young age, they get some sponsorship from federations, from private sponsors. And uh, it was not the case uh, with me, for example, in my time. Actually, my first, I can tell me personally, my first ever financial help let's say paying my preparation yeah with my trainers and so on i received in uh, 2007 when i was already three times world champion three times olympic champion and so on i i mean never zero before i mean i always paid completely from my own pocket all expenses i mean trainers teams uh, so now it's it's totally uh, different. I mean, uh, so especially when I was a kid, I remember that one, it was a funny situation. I still remember it very well because I was kind of progressing rather rapidly. And uh, at some point on, uh, at some moment, there was a moment, I think it was 1992, when I was, uh, you know, it was especially difficult period in Soviet Union. And uh, okay, people had no money almost, uh, including my family, not much at all. And uh, I was already quite a good player. I would say that I remember I was invited to a tournament in in, uh, Great Britain to play a tournament. And actually, I was receiving a a kind of fixed uh, fee to play this tournament because I was already pretty high on rating in top 100 and so on. And uh, but uh, and the fee was not so bad for the time. I remember even now it was one and a half thousand pounds. I mean, for my age, I was just 16. This was not bad at all, yeah? Which was, well, I would say maybe $2,000 at the time or more, which is now maybe 5000 yeah? I'd say by, by nowadays uh, uh, standards. But the problem was that I had no money to buy a ticket. That was really funny. I, I just had no... Uh, the ticket to London was like $500, but I had no... I didn't have it simply so it was ridiculous because i just i mean for me only appearing in this tournament 
would already bring me like two thousand dollars, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I I need to get there. <laughs> I don't have five hundred dollars just to buy a ticket. And I remember I went to my father. He went to a local businessman, kind of, and he just asked him, okay, if he can lend, uh, explain the situation, he can lend five hundred, and that in any case I give him seven hundred in in one month. You know, because because well, I, I I'm getting it. It just showed the contract that you know <laughs> just has to get there. So finally, yes, he landed. He I, I finally could go to to play this tournament, and uh, and actually I also won some prize money, so it was a good success. I came back and I gave him back, but he was not asking me to make any statements. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so it was a pure, very good business for the guy, yeah, because uh, you get how much, yeah, mm-hmm. like uh, 30 percent percent or more yeah in in one month not bad but uh, um, so it's it is real i mean the the main problem is especially at that time now again it's a bit different because uh, but at that time the main problem was on the way to the top yeah that simply if you are not from a rich family or even if you play well you need some money you need good trainers because from some at some point you know even if your talent is becoming more difficult to progress yeah because everybody is talented and good so you need some know-how some good trainer who would explain you things because you are young you still don't know a lot and uh, that costs some money yeah so um, that's still an issue sometimes yeah but uh, nowadays much less but that situation is I would say uh, if she would have, uh, if you're talking about the serial, if she would have been a, a kind of top player already, it would be perfectly real situation. As a top player, yeah, it's not very real because she she had probably earned already some money to to pay it uh, on her own, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which very I did once I started to to earn uh, decent money yeah i was just not asking anymore anyone just paying my from from my press money from my pocket to all trainers mm-hmm. so uh which is uh, of course quite costly but also good because you are totally independent from anyone and anything yeah mm-hmm. yeah so no forced messages no <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, uh, no advertisement like no i mean no uh yeah kind of uh, people who ask you something or because uh, they help you you know so in in some way i was fine with it and for me it was normal at that time you know the of course in soviet union we had totally different system when uh of course every player of top level was, was supported heavily but since the collapse of soviet union well it all finished and then you had to live uh you know on your own you had to do Uh, to go through you know nobody to rely on so i was quite lucky that this period of raising to the top when i started to earn already good money let's say being top 10 player or something you can already uh, secure your at least paying your expenses for all trainers and so on and uh, so this this was very short i mean i raised really very quickly so let's say if 1990 uh, beginning of 1992 Actually, this tournament in in London, in uh, yeah, in Great Britain was in March. I think March '92. Uh, so I, I I was still struggling to find five hundred dollars to 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 pay my ticket. Although I was already, I think I was already like number fifteen in the world. Yeah, but uh, no, I was just raising too quickly. Yeah, and uh, already in beginning of '93, I was in top 10 i was number eight in the world and already getting well, good money and all all possible tournaments and fees and so on so it was very quick mm-hmm. but if it would have been 
a bit slower, who knows? Maybe at some point it would become a serious issue because you need to train, yeah? I mean, you need to... So, uh, fortunately, I managed to to escape this problem, which quite some players, especially at that time, were, were experiencing. Yeah, They couldn't really manage to get on to the top just because, yeah, they had no money. Mm. So, okay, Vladimir, we still have a bit of time. Let's talk about the Queen's Gambit because it is such a popular thing at the moment and it's a great thing for chess, uh, yeah, the popularity of chess. But let's talk about the story behind it. Um, what do you think it's prototyped on and maybe you know things that were happening in the movie that were close to real life and what was not so close to real life? Uh, the the serial was uh, def- was uh, made after the book, yeah, which was written in the beginning of eighties, I think. And for me, no doubt that uh, I can see lots of parallels uh, of this Betts Harman, the uh, main character of of the story, with Bobby Fischer. Obviously, I mean, uh, no doubts the. Uh, prototype was Bobby Fischer. It was just uh, the, uh, that the uh, writer he decided to make uh, uh, him a female player. Just uh, I guess at that time it was something very strange and extraordinary, and, and maybe not really uh, a little bit science fiction. But in fact, after that uh, we we had the Judith Polgar. I mean, absolutely genius. Uh, a female chess player who, okay, she, she never became uh, world champion among men. Uh, uh, even if, of course, among women, there was no concurrence at all. She was by far the best. But uh, at her best, she was number eight in the world, yeah, yeah among men. So in top 10, which is, which means that, yeah, he was uh, fighting, you know, with, for many, many years, he was playing in top tournaments. I played a lot with her and with Kasparov. She played, she, she was beating from time to time. Of course, in general, she was a bit weaker, definitely than Kasparov or me or Anand uh, or Karpov, but she, she was beating them from time to time. I mean, she beat even Kasparov also once, uh, several times she beat Karpov, Anand. Somehow she, I was always a difficult opponent for her, so she couldn't, she never won a game against me, but it was quite an accident because most of the top players she would beat at least once. So in a way, you know, it was quite uh, interesting that this book was a profit book, yeah, because finally we had uh, the real top player, uh, top female player, I mean, uh, among men, yeah, so... Uh, I would say if we are looking at it from the nowadays uh, perspective, then we can say that uh, this Bess Harmon is a is a mixture of Bobby Fischer and Judith Polgar, I would say. Yeah? It's a kind of uh, prototype of, of those two personalities and players. Uh, the history, uh, obviously, uh, I mean, uh, of Bess Harmon is very much a history of Bobby Fischer. Um, because also he 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 came to Soviet Union at some point. Also, he was kind of uh, uh, playing all those American events. He became American champion as well. So it's to me absolutely clear that this uh, writer he was probably a big chess fan and he was following Fisher career. And then he he decided to make uh, uh, his novel after it. Uh, but. Uh, uh, 
since it's a woman, yeah, the main character, then you can say that it's also like, yeah, uh, it's pretty much uh, Judith Polgar who actually stopped chess a few years ago. She She's my age, Marola. She's one year younger than me. So we played a lot uh, in events, but she's, yeah, she's amazing. I mean, uh, so far, maybe it will be one day, yeah, uh, uh, but so far she's, I mean, absolutely unique in the whole history of chess uh, as a female player because we had some who were top 100 players, I mean, which is already a very big achievement. I mean, you know, I don't know uh, many sports, yeah, because chess is also sport. It requires a lot of physical endurance, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of uh, uh, kind of typical hormonally male uh, things, yeah, like testosterone, this kind of fight, fight yeah, I mean, uh, which is probably hormonally, uh, we are more uh, evolutionary, at least uh, we are more used to it, yeah, we are more done for it. So far, of course, you know, uh, evolution is going its own way and maybe one day it will be uh, different. But so far it is the case. And uh, of course, to achieve uh, with this uh, kind of, I would say, uh, hormonal handicap, yeah, <laughs> I mean, for this particular activity, yeah, of course, it's uh, uh, also even the physical strength is actually quite important for chess because you sit and play for seven hours and you need lots of energy and even, you know, uh, uh, so uh, this is a big achievement. And uh, so she, Judith Polgar, yes, she was, I mean, amazing because we've, it's uh, may will be achieved maybe one day, but uh, to be a top ten player and to be she played all top tournaments, you know, for many many years. That is really we all have a lot of respect to her. She's also a very nice person, a very simple, quiet, not a best harmon at all, you know, by character. She's very well educated, polite, and very nice woman as well, and uh, of course a complete genius. I mean, and uh, a big inspiration actually not only for women, but also for men, for me, because it's nice. It's nice to see uh, when a person is achieving so much, yeah? I mean, uh, it's, I don't know, for me, uh, you know, I, I would like more women to be top players, I mean, if they can, yeah, I, I, because it's it's actually, I don't have any, absolutely anything, I'm not a sexist at all, you know, I would like to have, because it's it's nice, it's nice to see how they achieve, how they progress, yeah? And uh, it was very inspirational. We, uh, all the world of chess has uh, absolute respect, uh, you know, on, on her. Uh, so, yeah, that was uh, probably the prototype uh, uh, nowadays. And uh, if you are talking about the whole uh, story of Bess Harmon, her achievement, it uh, pretty much depends on how you see it. Uh, because uh, basically, in reality, what have happened uh, in the movie is that she became a top player, which Judith Polgar, at least for sure, was. I mean, uh, that's nothing unrealistic. And uh, then she won, a, she won, she beat the world champion in a particular tournament, uh, in a particular game, uh, which also have happened, in fact, yeah. So that is totally realistic story. I mean, nowadays, maybe at the time when, when the, uh, uh, the book was written, it was uh, kind of a little bit of a science fiction. Now it's a totally realistic story, even historically. But uh, it depends, again, if you, if you want to see it as a, uh, a female player who became the world champion, yeah? 
I mean, which is not really the case in the movie. I mean, it, it gives you a chance to consider it like this. Yeah, that she beat mm. the world champion. But winning one game against world champion or even one tournament where he participates, it doesn't give, I mean, it doesn't mean that you're the world champion or even the best player in the world. Yeah. So uh, that is at least something which haven't have happened yet, at least, yeah, uh, historically. Uh, but otherwise, the whole story is totally realistic. I mean, I remember I've played myself in this tournament when, for instance, Judith Polga, she beat Gary Kasparov in a game. I mean, very convincingly, she outplayed him. And uh, she so and she beat two or three times with Jonathan Anand. So it's completely uh, overtook, let's say, uh, sometimes overtaking them, you know, in the final standings in the tournament. So in this case, it's totally realistic story. Yeah? So that's why it depends how you see it. Again, of course, I think maybe the quite important part of the success of the movie was a very wide uh, possible interpretation. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's left without very clear answers. I mean, you can imagine yourself, uh, actually, the, uh, I mean, was she a, a really absolutely best chess player or just she was, she became a top player, beat the world champion, was it, uh, you know, what was this uh, pills she was taking and so on and so on. Many, many other things are not, not, I would say, uh, explained till the end and that is maybe uh, was a part of the success because then you can actually see it in your own way as i see it in a very pragmatical way i mean i try just to see the facts in this movie what was happening and how yeah it's totally realistic and uh, also you know the whole uh, story of how a chess player is developing uh whether male or female doesn't matter yeah how they develop, it's all very, very realistic, yeah. In fact, this first teacher of this best Harmon, I had very similar set story, very, very similar, My, myself, you know, because mm -hmm. my first teacher was also a, a, a local player. It was also underground, actually, you know, this in this underground, uh, in basement, basement mm -hmm. when he, in our local, uh, I was born in Toapse, in a Russian provincial town in the south of Russia, and we had a big chess enthusiast. He was also, he was not never a very strong player. He was, I mean, but he loved chess incredibly. So he was just doing chess most of his time. Uh, and uh, at some point he just opened some small chess section. Just, I think he was not even getting paid, uh, you know, just because he learned. He, um, and uh, he, announced that, you know, everyone who wants, all kids who wants to study chess, you know, they can come. And then my father, he brought my brother, who is five years older than me. He, he was 10, I was five at that time. And I came with him because I knew how to play chess, more or less, you know, already at least the rules. And then uh, somehow, I remember, he, he asked me to play with him. Because, uh, I mean, in, in fact, it was so much like in this movie that, uh, you know, it was really amazing as if they copied this story because, uh, and actually it was, if you're talking about the book, I think it was written in 83 or something. I mean, I would say my story was 1980 yeah, or 81, so very close period, of, same period of time. And, and uh, then the coach, he asked my father, okay, it's, well, my brother is clear, he knows how to play chess. I mean, he knows the rules, so I take uh, him and uh, what is this small boy? Does he play chess? And I said, yeah, he knows the rules. So, but he's a bit too small to join the session. And then I remember that he offered me to play a game with him. 
uh, and uh, uh, and I remember that. So I even you know this I remember extremely well. Uh, even the pieces we had, you know, the type of pieces, even the game, I remember, and it was really uh, stayed in my memory for uh, maybe for the rest of my life. You know, it will stay because. Uh, actually, he 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 wanted just to check not only that I can that I know the rules, but also can do I understand at least something in strategy. I mean, do I have any kind of general understanding of what's going on? Mm-hmm. And he would just play some totally unambitious moves, you know, not not really trying to attack me or anything, just to see what I what I'm going to do. And I remember I put all my pieces in a very correct way in the center, you know, developed everything. And he was very happy after like 10 moves. He said, okay, okay, good. I see we take you. So I see that not only that you know the rules, but also you understand what is it all about the game. Yeah. So that, and then, uh, then he was also, I, we were going like twice a week there and we, and he, you know, he, as, as this person in the movie, he also was, he loved chess so much that he was, you know, somehow giving it to us, this love, yeah? Because, I mean, he was telling stories. He knew everything about chess, about all Lasker, Capablanca, all the stories, all their life. So he would he would show a game and then tell some stories, what he did he do the day before, according to the archives and so on. It was, it was like a fairy tale, you know? It was like mm-hmm. a two hours of fairy tale. So, um, yeah, so he got... Uh, uh, me hooked, you know, on, on chess. And that was very, and even the, it was kind of half dark basement, uh, was very similar circumstances like this Betts Harmon. So I, I could see, yes, lots of things were, yeah, it was very well done, uh, I would say. And also Gary Kasparov, he was, uh, uh, he was helping with all chess matters all chess positions, you know, how pieces move and that not to avoid kind of, simp- I mean, uh, obvious mistakes, which was uh, done and yeah, it was done pretty well. So this part, um, we were discussing with many other chess players and yeah, we were pleasantly surprised to see that uh, everything was quite close to the reality. I mean, to the reality of a life and of a career of a chess player. Mm. I want to get back to this uh, beautiful story that you told about uh, yourself going to that basement and uh, having that first chess lesson, basically. Yeah. As a five-year-old, what hooked you in the game? It's hard to say. You know, it's difficult to say because uh, it's something... uh, You don't... I mean, I don't know. It's probably my uh, state of mind. I mean, my... I actually like uh, an intellectual effort. I mean, uh, I think it's very deeply in me, probably from birth, you know. I mean, it's something which attracts me a lot. Uh, You know, somebody likes physical effort, somebody likes uh, maybe artistic effort. Yeah, they start to be playing an instrument at the very young age, they they really enjoy it. And for me, it was like a a perfect field of, you know, where I could... at this age already, you know, when I can express my passion for for thinking, if you want, yeah, for analyzing, mm-hmm. because of course, maybe later on, if I wouldn't have been a chess player, I would maybe go to mathematics, physics, I don't know, probably something of that sort. But uh, that would that needs quite a lot of knowledge, yeah. And chess is is like a game where you know you just learn and then you can start even at five, yeah. So I guess something like that because I remember. Uh, 
I was not never pushed to study chess. I mean, once uh, I was five or six, I would study myself, actually. I mean, I, I didn't have a trainer at that time. Okay, we were going with my brother twice a week for two hours. But uh, the rest of the time, I mean, uh, I, I would just study at home. I would just, I, I asked my father to buy me a book or two on chess. And I would just go through games. And I, I remember I was enjoying it. I liked it. I mean, it was never the case that my father or mother, they were, you know, telling me, okay, now you have to work on chess. Not at all. In fact, other way around. Sometimes they would tell me, okay, stop. I mean, go to for a walk or something because it's just, you know, <laughs> you need to breathe some fresh air. So it was a na very natural passion. I don't know. It just fit. I was very lucky in this way because I believe... Uh, All people have talents, yeah? But uh, sometimes you're just not lucky to discover it too late or, or never actually to discover it. Yeah? And I was just, you know, was very lucky that uh, I'm, I'm absolutely not sure that uh, I would have been so successful in anything else than chess. I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe I would be quite successful, but not to such level. It's just that it was a perfect fit and it happened very early. And uh, mm -hmm. so it gave me a chance to... Uh, to become a top player because if I would have uh, discovered chess when I was 12 already, okay, I would still probably be a good player, but maybe not a world champion. You need to start really early uh, because it should get into your blood, into your, I don't know, you know, it has to be really, uh, have to, you have to be formated, you know, with, with chess somehow, you know, as a personality. So, Yeah, so that is, but uh, it's always difficult to explain. In fact, many people who achieved a lot in their uh, fields, they've told me that uh, they didn't really like it from the beginning. I mean, even musicians, quite a few, you know, very famous musicians, they told me that, okay, they were really forced by their parents. And then from some point on, they really started to like it a lot. But with me, from the beginning, I mean, I just, next day when I was shown, uh, when I learned how to play chess, I, I loved it. And when was your first competitive match? Oh, it was very soon after. I remember uh, when I was six already. Mm. And how, how, Actually, how was and, that uh, feeling? Because that's obviously a completely different thing. When you're put into that sort of stress environment. I don't know if you've seen it as a stress environment when you actually have uh, yeah, to compete. Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, How yeah. did this feel? It was stressful. It was stressful, but uh, I don't know. It was important for me. I liked it, but yeah, it's in this mixture. Of, in fact, I played in my... Uh, I, I, I played among men, you know, the tournament uh, in our town championship uh, when I was seven. And it was a bit kind of funny because, you know, seven years old boy, I was playing with most of the guys were from 40 to 70, you know. And uh, to play with this kind of small kid, it was, I guess, quite annoying for them and especially sometimes losing, yeah, because I finally, I remember this, our town championship was, uh, okay, we have a considerably small uh To is my native town is considerably small by Soviet standards, but still like 50,000 population, yeah? So uh, we had more or less, most of the players were somewhere around uh, 1,800, 2,000 rating, yeah? So kind of good, good amateur, you know, I mean, good level. And uh, 
Yes, and I think there were 14 participants, and I was somewhere finally in the middle, like seventh or eighth, uh, which is not so bad. I'll, actually, next year I won it already. Uh, I became. Wait, the, you I won it when you were eight years old? Yeah, yeah, I won the men men uh, <laughs> world championship, uh, men championship uh, of our city. Yeah, uh, but uh, I can imagine it was a bit annoying for them to play me because, of course, <laughs> I understand I have talent, but still, you know, when you play uh, or like a poker, can you imagine you play you play a poker? Okay, not you, of course, but a local player, good local player, and then there is some seven years old kid who is who is, you know, playing uh, in the same level and beats sometimes. Yeah, it's a kind of humiliating. So <laughs> I guess for them it was much more difficult than for me. But I remember for me it was quite stressful also because I, I took it very seriously, again, from the beginning, uh, which shows that it was my thing. Somehow I took it extremely I mean, I really, uh, you know, I was caring about it a lot winning or losing you know i mean for me it was important so i remember i was quite stressed yeah but that's okay that's not bad because uh uh you know it's uh, if you have a quite stable nerve system and i believe i do have uh, then it's uh, maybe it's quite useful to to have this kind of stress uh, experiences quite early because it uh, makes you, you know, it makes you get used to it, makes you stronger, you know, you you know what it is to feel the stress from the very early on. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I remember I was, yeah, I was crying if I would lose a game most of the time, not always, but sometimes I would cry. Uh, I think that sometimes if I would win a game against some 50 years old guy, he would maybe cry. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere you know uh, at home alone <laughs> i don't know but uh, it was a serious serious thing yeah so how did you actually handle the losses sure you cry that's the moment of releasing your emotions but after yeah. how how did you deal with the losses both losses in a match and and more looking at it longer term I think I was quite strong in it. I mean, uh, it wouldn't shake my confidence for too long, at least. Yeah. Uh, of course, when you lose, um, uh, you know, one game or two games, at some when something goes, you know, doesn't go well in a tournament, in a special tournament. Yeah, definitely, you cannot really. It's difficult to play as well as usual. Yeah, because some somehow. You lose interest and negative emotions. You know, you're not so confident in this particular event. But uh, what is important that it doesn't shake you in the long run. Yeah, It doesn't shake you for months or half a year. Yeah, I mean, okay, uh, once, a, once a time or even some small periods of times, you can really be uh, not in good shape. Something is going wrong. Yeah, I mean, not even uh, mentioning one particular game. You can lose always. Yeah, So one particular loss would never uh, shake me or my confidence. I mean, it would have it would have been always it was unpleasant. I mean, more or less depending on how bad was my mistake and let's say how how stupid uh, uh, was my loss. Uh, and mm -hmm. when it when it's really stupid, when you make it, it, it absolutely 
stupid mistake uh, just by, you know, misconcentration or just you hurry too much. And, you know, that is quite painful because, uh, yeah, you, uh, but you just curse yourself and say, okay, this is simply not the, not the way you, you should play. I mean, but of course it happens to everyone from time to time. But uh, in any case, usually next day I would be perfectly fine. I mean, next, it's a next game and okay, that's it. Doesn't mean that I, that this mistake will be repeated. So, and actually I would say that, uh, I've uh, checked uh, statistically I, uh, very, very often. I mean, I won a lot of games next day after the loss. You know, so next day I was uh, winning yeah, a game. That happened really maybe more often than any other chess players for some reason. I don't know why, but I was this kind of uh, uh, backcomer, yeah? <laughs> And next day, I, I would usually play well, even better than, than usual, yeah? So um, that's why for me, it was not uh, a problem, never really was a problem. And that is quite an important element uh, in chess, I believe. Why? Hard to say. It's maybe just my uh, way of seeing things, you know. I'm, I'm a long runner, you know. I, I, okay, I always see a long perspective. And... You know, if you look at the long perspective, one loss or even one bad tournament doesn't mean so much. Yeah? So somehow I would say, okay, I, yeah, it's it's a part of the deal. Yeah, if you start in a professional career, you can have a bad game, bad tournament, even bad period for for a couple of months when really you you don't play well. But it will, yeah, it will change if you just keep on working. If you don't lose all confidence in yourself, in then you know things will come back and. Uh, so far, you know, I had few periods when it was really not going well for some time. And then you just have to keep on making efforts, wait, and it was always coming back. One day it always comes back if you don't lose this uh, deep confidence in, in yourself. All right. I want to ask you about another uh, moment from the Queen's Gambit. Uh, mm -hmm. The moment where Beth Harmon is preparing for the tournament and I guess it was Baltic who's helping her. So mm -hmm. Beth Harmon is a superior player. She has a much weaker player helping with him with the preparation. Obviously, this is happening all of the time. It's not yeah. that you can only learn from players who are better than you. But can you talk a bit about that? Like how much of that was part of your uh, early career where there were people who were basically pushing you, helping you to, to achieve more by uh, helping with the preparation, etc. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's something in chess. Uh, yeah, uh, once you start to play from the very early age, you have trainers who are helping you. And then, especially on the top level, you need to have some people who will guide you because there is a lot of work. First of all, there is a technical work to collect material, to let's say to go through lots of game and out of 1000 game to you know finally to put on your table only 10 which really deserve attention that's also a lot of work but uh, at the same time it, uh, um, it's not actually necessary to be uh, I mean a, a very strong player I, of course stronger you are better it is but uh, it's very very important to be a clever person you know really to see I mean to uh, to make conclusions because sometimes uh, when you play, especially when you are young, 
I mean, you don't reflect so well because you, you are not experienced yet. And somebody who is more experienced, let's say, is older than you, he is not maybe even half as strong as you, but he can, he can see, okay, this element, okay, in this moment, I, I could see by your face, I was in the playing hall, that you started to get nervous. And in fact, during a game, you don't even, uh, you're not even aware of it sometimes. You are mm-hmm. deeply into the game. And then, or, or some even chess elements, you know, some very tiny things which uh, he has enough level to understand and also he has enough uh, cleverhood to grasp, yeah? certain elements which you might miss and that is very important very very important or also about your opponents yeah he while you are playing a tournament he also follows uh your next opponents in this tournament and he's he tries to see not only chess wise also psychologically how they behave during a game uh and expression emotions and so on so it can be very 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 helpful i mean it's an absolute must uh, when you are growing even at the time of, of you know, when you're already world champion, you still need a person, but of course has to be uh, selected, you know, has to be... Uh, actually, I can tell it's not easy to find such person, not easy. It's quite difficult because he has to be a good chess player at the same time to have a lot of time for you, yeah? So he probably shouldn't be a very active chess player himself at the same time. Or maybe he can play, but not very actively. And uh, a very clever person, you know, who can... Uh, make uh, who can give you lots of I mean uh, very uh, interesting and original ideas because you know basic things you know yourself I mean about your opponents and so on but uh, yes it is and and of course when when you're playing the world championship matches or big tournaments you just need a helper you know because simply you play every game you know, every day, sometimes there is one rest day, so you just finish your game, let's say six hours game, you're very tired, you, you just go to sleep because you need to recover, and then you have to play already, like, uh, you wake up, have breakfast, and in three hours you are playing your next game. So he needs, maybe in the evening while you are resting, he needs to collect material for your next opponent, including what he has done earlier in this particular tournament, and to give a certain picture of him, how to play with him, what particular openings maybe, and then, you know, so it's a, it's a very important work also, which you simply don't have time and energy to do during a tournament. Uh, so, yeah, that's... Uh, so, uh, but that can be a weaker guy. For example, in this, uh, in this serial, you can see that she was uh, very young, so this... Uh, uh, what was his name, yeah? Uh, his, the, her trainer, Bertek or something, yeah? Oh, the trainer, uh, you mean the trainer who was... I mean, whom you mentioned. Uh, oh, Baltic. Baltic, was Baltic, the, Baltic. Baltic was the guy who uh, she won the first tournament against. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, uh, oh, there, there was also another guy, more local, yeah, was also helping her at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these guys are more, they're older, they actually know more about chess. I mean, simply uh, knowledge. And she, she's a pure talent, but she doesn't know much. She never really studied so much. So, they're trying to, um, you know, to give her a hint what exactly to study, you know, and what books to study and wh- what, you know, uh, also which elements to pay attention to more, you know. So it's more like a, like a, uh, a kind of professor at school, yeah. I mean, j- just, just explaining something. I mean, by talent, she's much better than them, but she still needs knowledge, yeah, and they can provide it in the most efficient way, yeah, in, uh, you know, because otherwise if you just start yourself, you're young, you don't know, 
and you have thousands of books, you are just lost. Yeah, what to study? Mm-hmm. What which books are more important, less important, uh, and so on. And so this, this these guys were uh, given this. Uh, Mm, directions and that is also yeah that that was also very close to the real you know situation in mm-hmm. in real uh, chess world and also there was this moment which kind of exemplifies the inexperience and uh, the importance of actually having somebody guide you on the right path because um so beth harman believed that she played the perfect game against Baltic, that the first game that she won, that first local small tournament, right? She mm-hmm. won that, she believed that it was great. And at some point, that uh, character, I don't remember his name, the, the guy looked like a bit of a cowboy with uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. the hat with, and everything. With, uh, who was playing chess with a knife. Yeah, on the yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, American champion, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he was obviously a very good player mm-hmm. in the movie. And he told her that, oh, you know what? That game that you won against Baltic, uh, if he made a different move, it would have been a completely different outcome. And that mm-hmm. sort of really influenced her because she went through the game and it sort of everything collapsed for her because all her yeah. mm-hmm. uh, belief that, you know, I'm invincible, I'm so great, I'm, I, I've mm-hmm. played that game, game amazing and I looked over it hundreds, maybe thousands of times mm-hmm. and she didn't spot that weakness. Mm-hmm. So moments like these are probably also pivotal in in the career of a chess player, where you learn something that it just opens your eyes to complete different yeah. possibilities. No, I mean that that moment was very important, actually very true and very uh, I would say educational even. Yeah, that's that's exactly what is happening. That I mean, of course, it depends on your on your temper if you want on your uh, character because as best she was pretty confident about herself yeah, I was not I mean I, I I would never be sure that I've played perfect game you know uh, uh, especially you know before I became a top player but in any case yeah that's true that you know chess is very how to say it's a it's a very complicated game and, and you know the new kind of levels new slices are opening all the time so at some point you really believe that you understood more or less everything about a certain type of position and you you know how to play it and then coming to a next level there is a next uh, a person who is already stronger and then you work with him or you play with him and you and, and all of a sudden you start to see that no in fact it's not so easy it's maybe even quite wrong what I uh, what I thought and then again and then to the next level and again you you discover certain like in science you know or in medicine yes yeah, always new things coming or let's say science yes some things people were taught i mean big scientists were totally sure about now the new things are discovered like uh, quantum physics you know it turns everything upside down uh, and you know it's it's the same in chess so that is very typical and also what uh, I, I i mean i like this moment when you know he, he's playing blitz games with her yeah in mm-hmm. the cafeteria yes Yes. And that is also very, very good, very actually well done because uh, what is uh, they're trying to show that, okay, she's more talented than, than him. She's maybe a better player than him objectively, but he knows more. And then, you know, uh, when they play, he's, he's starting to beat her in blitz and uh, you have to pay attention to, to the words he is saying because he's saying, ah, okay, you played like this guy and she doesn't know at all. She just plays 
you know, the moves she, she, she likes, she wants to play because she feels it's good moves. And he, ah, ah, this is what this guy played, but he told that it was not a good move because of this move and, uh, and uh, in this game. And actually it shows, and he's beating her. So it shows that basically, okay, you can have a lot of talent, but you need also to learn a lot, simply to have knowledge. And they're showing that he simply knows more than her. And that's why he decides he invites her to training sessions. Okay, you need to learn these things if you want to progress because only talent is not enough. And that's, that is absolutely true. That sometimes just uh, an experienced player with a lot of knowledge can, can beat a very talented young player. And, uh, uh, and that, is, that is sometimes gives you, a, uh, finally, makes you understand that you need to work hard, yeah? that you need to know certain things in chess. Because when you are young, and especially if you have a kind of quite confident uh, state of mind, you think that, okay, uh, I mean, you, you win because you're just much better than your opponents. And there is certain moment comes when all of a sudden you, you stop winning because, I mean, you think that it should continue like that, but then, you know, you get to another level and there, you, without knowledge, you just cannot, only on talent, you just cannot manage. And that is very well shown in, uh, uh, in, in this movie. Yeah, that actually, uh, yeah. And with this also idea, she was confident. She, she thought she played well and he's explaining her that, in fact, it was not, and, and it's true that quite often it's uh, happened, and later already with the computer programs, that even going through old games, which I thought were fantastic, I mean, uh, which I played even on the top level, but now with modern machines, and then you see, no, 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 this was not so accurate. This was also maybe not a completely correct move. And you reassess completely, yeah? Mm -hmm. you, you say, okay, it was maybe not so great a perfect game as I thought, yeah? Now, nowadays, it's much easier, of course, because of the machines, but uh, of the engines. But at that time, it was, yeah, it was uh, much more difficult to understand it. I mean, that you made mistakes, yeah. And, uh, but I remember myself, I had such experiences from time to time also, and it was always very, very educational. It would uh, help me to, to progress, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting with the machines, when you see a mistake in a situation which was not obvious to you, you, you didn't know there was a mistake, you were not even thinking, you were not expecting to see inaccuracy or a mistake you thought everything's fine you see the machine disagrees what would be the course of action for improving when this happens well in uh, in all cases i think in in all uh, sports i guess it's including poker as well uh, okay it's not enough to to understand where was a mistake. What is very important is to, how to say, to structureize them. Let's say to, to understand the patterns of the mistake. Yeah. The similarity between, let's say, your mistakes and then to understand the general, you know, to go to generalize it. Because, okay, uh, usually there are more mistakes in the areas where you are a little weaker. Yeah. I mean, if, if, you, if you are good at generalizing it, because mm -hmm. just one mistake, okay, everybody can make mistakes, world champions make mistakes. It doesn't mean anything if you made a mistake uh, here or there. I mean, you cannot draw any conclusions. Okay, just that computer showed you that, let's say, you missed a better opportunity and, in fact, you missed something and this move was bad. 
So what, what? How can you improve? I mean, no way. Yeah, you can improve from from, from this experience. But when you you let's say analyze your your game and and uh, or your games during last two three tournaments, already you have a certain amount of mistakes and accuracies. And I can tell you most of the time the and the experience trainer also, yeah, experienced player can really understand it very quickly. What is the uh, the field uh, of uh, let's say in chess where you you start to make more mistakes than usual yeah and then analyzing then it's already becoming uh, educational then you can understand but you need to structureize it yeah without structurizing you cannot make any use of it of, of mm -hmm. a mistake i mean but uh, let's say very often in fact when you see especially young players sometimes i see very talented but I, I very quickly after one tournament, I can see clearly what what he has to work on because it becomes clear by uh, sometimes it's not even mistake, but but the way he's playing, taking long more time, clearly playing less confident. You can as experience, you can see very quickly that okay, this is this is his weak point now, and this and this and here he's very good, and uh, and then then okay, if then you can start to work on it. But as, uh, otherwise, computer showing uh, where exactly the mistake, it's more like a proof. Yeah, it's, it doesn't uh, bring much in itself. It just, it's just like a mathematical proof. Yeah, it, it, you know, it calculates out that this. I mean, otherwise, you would probably also get, get to the same conclusion, but you cannot prove it. Yeah, so you, you always have doubts that maybe, in fact, in, it was not a mistake. Now, you, it, uh, so in this way, it becomes, and maybe that is why, the uh, chess is becoming younger and younger because it becomes much easier to progress. Not only that there is much more information and access to information, but also that you can easily understand your weaknesses, yeah, what to work on. I mean, it becomes much easier because if you have a bit of uh, analytical abilities, yeah, you just, uh, you know, I mean, with a machine, it just shows you all the mistakes, then you just need to think a bit and then you you know what is your weak point. And there are so many parallels here with, with poker, but I'm, I'm not even going to get into it right no, now. No, no, it's very interesting. I, I'm quite interested. But I guess, yeah, chess poker is, yeah, there's something quite similar, yeah. I mean, uh, in a structure, as a structure. So I'm Except, pretty sure. You know, when, when you're looking at the solution in chess... As you said, that's almost mathematical proof. Okay, we, we can have uh, deeper solves. You know, the chess engines evolved from, you know, 20 moves ahead, 50 moves ahead, et cetera, et cetera. Now there's a different approach with alpha zero, which we discussed the first time we were having a conversation. But still, it's a pretty much conclusive proof that one move is better than the other. Whereas in poker, it's not definitive. You know, it, it depends on the type of solve, et cetera, et cetera. Some, some games are, are simpler to solve than others, but most of the solves that we have uh, for games that people still play actively, they are with a lot of abstraction and approximation. But I can tell you it's the same in chess. It's, uh, it's uh, I, uh, again, there are situations when... Uh, uh, you know, it's uh, there is obviously one move which is better than uh, all others, but that usually is a situation when any good player can find it on himself, mm -hmm. uh, on his own. But very often there are positions where there is no clear solution. Even computer is given, let's say, first top, let's say, three moves are more or less equal. He doesn't, 
it says it's it's equal. Three moves are equally good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also sometimes even a move which is objectively a little bit uh, weaker, uh, you know, uh, knowing your opponent, it's obviously the best solution because it turns the game into the into the field where uh, he's not so good. I mean, where his weak points are. So it's also yeah, it's not so mathematical chess. I mean. Uh, we are, of course, we are only talking about situation uh, situations when it's not obvious. I mean, when it's getting clearly mathematical, most of the time it's quite obvious. But otherwise, there are lots of situations where basically you have two more or less equal moves, but which are uh, turning the game into totally different directions. But objectively, let's say they are more or less equal. Let's say both are leading to equal positions, but of a totally different type of position. One is very quiet, positional endgame, another is extremely sharp and complicated. So you need completely different qualities to play such positions, but uh, objectively they are equal. So that's why you also need to, to know well yourself, your opponent, so these elements are becoming important. So in this sense, I wouldn't say that it's so different to to poker and again uh, what i want to repeat that very often computer is saying when we analyze it when i see that in some position it says more or less top five lines the difference is minor so more or less equal top five moves so and then uh what does it mean it means that you can play them all and then you know uh, you have to make a choice on your own. So you cannot objectively say that this move was mm. uh, must be played. It's quite subjective also. Yeah, that that is very similar with poker as well. Because yeah. for the most part, obviously there are situations where there is a dominant move and everything else is just plain wrong. But yeah. for the most mm-hmm. part, there is at least two, three options. And yeah, either yeah, one can inches. can get can can work, and the differences are really small. Exactly the same. Exactly the same. So in this sense, it's totally similar. Yeah. To, right. To chess. Vladimir, you know what? I really enjoyed this conversation. I want to be respectful of your time because I know you have, yeah, uh, have to somewhere run. to yeah, go. Yeah. So I think we can wrap it up. There's still so many things to talk about, and off camera we discussed that we also want to talk a bit about uh, the 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 story of uh when you were the world champion and all the all the politics and everything that was going on there and it's a long conversation that one in itself so i'm i'm sure we're gonna leave it for round number three so to say yeah with for, pleasure when we have time, time yes uh, i don't know if it's such a specific conversation would be interesting for the public but uh, uh yeah if you think so we can we can give it a try well, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of people who would really, really enjoy that story because it is a fascinating story. And I know a bit about that story. And first of all, it's fascinating in its own right. Second, there are so many parallels with other fields, not only chess, because when we would talk about that story, we we would also see similar things happening in other fields, including poker and what's happening with, with all the politics and power plays currently in our business as well so that that would be great but that we'll leave for another time okay uh, good so thank you and uh, yes so with a pleasure to talk to you and uh, uh, we can agree to a certain period of time when we can make this session and uh, uh, I I would maybe think of uh, 
very briefly telling you the history of chess. I mean, very briefly how it was all going, you know, from the, let's say, 15th century, more or less, yeah? I mean, uh, to nowadays, uh, because I don't know if everybody knows it, uh, something about it. It's quite a fascinating story, quite a lot of very, very interesting uh, figures uh, were involved in it, you know, playing chess and... Uh, uh, we have a rich history, yeah. I mean, history-wise, definitely chess is very rich, yeah. And there were a lot of very famous and important, I mean, you know, people in culture, in, uh, you know, many f uh, big musicians, writers, uh, they play chess and they were quite good at chess and like Nabokov, for example, or many others, you know, many musicians. Lev Tolstoy, he liked to play chess, you know, Lenin played chess. He quite liked chess as well. So a lot of figures. Uh, yeah, so I, I will try to, to give a certain, uh, to give a certain summary of the history of chess, you know, but of course more, uh, maybe more deeply uh, the uh, modern history of chess, so to say. I mean, the history when I was already playing on top level and was involved in it, so because that is that I know much more, of course. But mm -hmm. there were lots of very interesting things happening uh, with chess, you know, and uh, quite historical, you know, because it was kind of uh, chess since it was a part of a culture always. Yeah, it was pretty much connected with the history, you know, somehow. And all the world champions, for example, they were very much a child of their times. And uh, had quite a lot of uh, their biographies were, you know, very characteristic for the time we were living. Uh, uh, they were living in, and that makes it quite interesting. They were quite like, especially uh, Alokin, uh, Batvinnik, I don't know, Mikhail Tal, Robert James Fisher, of course. Uh, I mean, very very interesting personalities. I mean, a real world. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes strange, sometimes. Uh, very, you know, uh, un, uh, unconventional, but, uh, but you know, very charismatic. Often they were very charismatic and lots of things were happening and touching the other parts of the, of, uh, of human life, you know, like politics and so on. So quite, quite some characters. So I would try to uh, to tell about some of them, which was the most. Uh, but for now, yeah, I would, uh, yeah, I would recommend you to watch this movie on, on Bobby Fischer. Oh, I mean, so. not the Hollywood one, but the documentary. It's better because there are lots of documentary interviews with him and some documentaries on this match with with Pasky. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's extremely interesting for anyone, even if you are not interested in chess. But it's 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 a it's not about chess. It's about a personality, tragic, I would say, personality. It's a very touching movie because you see this pass of a person, of a genius, very talented person, slowly pass to a kind of psych psychical, you know, illnesses. You know, and you can you can follow it. You know, with the movies, documentary, and that is. Really, really amazing. I really uh, would recommend this movie. And uh, yes, so we uh, then you will be maybe uh, our uh, listeners. I mean, uh, would be more ready for the next session. Yeah, mm -hmm. they would start to understand what is uh, chess. And but I'll, I'll uh, definitely put links to all of all yeah, of those yeah, things. Yeah, this, in, this, in the, this is the, a very good one. Yeah, I, I would recommend. Yeah.
But don't don't draw too many conclusions. Don't think that everybody is like this. I mean, there are some <laughs> characters like that, but not we are not all like this. Okay, good, good. So thank oh, you very fantastic. much, and uh, we see each other soon. Absolutely, Vladimir. Thank you once again, and uh, like you said, see you soon. Bye. See you. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the description, and of course, I'd highly appreciate if you subscribe, click like, spread the word about the podcast. Also, if you'd like to receive a regular newsletter with my key takeaways about each episode, go ahead and subscribe to it on runchexpodcast.com. That's R-U-N-C-H-U-K-S podcast.com. I write those myself. I take it seriously and I really enjoy the interaction with the readers. So I hope you'll sign up uh, and I'll be back for you next time. Thank you.